great to have so many wonderful people in the house. And uh, are you glad to be in church this morning? Uh, do you know, I've no idea what I would do if someone said no. That's a really, it's a really dangerous question to ask just in case you've got to know. Um, re- really good to have you here. Um, do pray for my, my wife, uh, Libby, who is not Paul. Um, although it was a good impression this morning you did of her. I think she'd have really appreciated that. Um, and uh, and Judah, just they're, they're really unwell this morning, so they've had to stay at home uh, to not spread any infection, which is nice. So, uh, yeah, do pray for them. Um, so we're continuing our well-being journey this morning. Um, but just before I do that, I wanted to just give you a little nod, put this on your radar. Lent begins this week um, on the same day as Valentine's Day. So it's up to you how you celebrate. Uh, it's up to you whether, whether you begin Lent or you begin Valentine's Day, what you prioritise. Um, Shrove Tuesday, no doubt no one will miss that, Pancake Day. Uh, show of hands, who's going to be celebrating Pancake Day in full force? There we go, of course you are. Um, but after Pancake Day uh, is Lent. Uh, Lent is a 40-day run-up to Easter and it marks um, uh, this idea of sacrificing something to relate to the sacrifice of Jesus. Those 40 days represent Jesus fasting in the wilderness for 40 days. And so often, typically what happens, someone will give up something. It might be something novel, it might be something serious for you. Um, for 40 days to relate to that sense of sacrifice that Jesus made for us. And so whether you're giving up chocolate, uh, social media, Netflix, or something more extreme, um, just something to think about. A lot of us will be doing those kind of things. And then really what we'll talk about more is Palm Sunday, when we reach Palm Sunday in about four weeks' time. But if you are giving up something for Lent, or you just forgot about it, uh, it begins this Wednesday on Valentine's Day. Maybe you'll be giving up date night. Don't do that because it's Valentine's Day. Um, but we wanted to put that on your radar, um, and we don't, we don't mark Ash Wednesday uh, in the same way that a lot of other churches do, simply because we, we have a school that we meet in, and it'd be very strange if we all turn up on a Wednesday when all of the kids are here, um, so please don't do that, but you can mark it in your own way, maybe think about, pray about, what could I do, maybe something that has a bit of a hold on me, maybe something that I'm so familiar and comfortable with, maybe I can give that up for a little period and use that as a way of focusing on Jesus as we come to what is probably the most important and significant celebration for us Christians, which is Easter. Who is excited about Easter? Can you believe it is not far away? Um, But this morning we're going to be talking about uh, our well-being journey. And so we're about halfway through this. And so uh, uh, the whole sense of these well-being weeks that we're going through is not so much about fixing us. It's not about having a perfect life. It's taking time to give attention to different aspects of who we are, of our makeup in God, and say, actually, how does this look being brought in line with the Lord? How does this look being brought in line with God's plan and God's will for my well-being? And maybe that's something you've never heard before, but God does have a plan for your well-being. He does have a will for your well-being. In fact, the Lord talks to us continually through Scripture about our peace, our wellness, and our wholeness, and bringing that back in line with the kingdom of God. And so what we're doing is exploring how we can do that specifically. And this morning, we start emotions. Who's ever felt like they're a highly emotional person? Uh, this, this isn't a confession time, but the truth is that we're, we're all actually emotional people. I don't know if you've ever said that about somebody, oh, they're not very emotional, or, or they're very emotional, but the truth is we, we're all emotional people. We all have emotions that churn away uh, inside of us, and we all have a, a, a range of abilities around what we do with those emotions. And even for those that maybe don't feel uh, sad or don't feel happy or don't uh, uh, cry at uh, very sad films, 
uh, like me. That doesn't mean you're not emotional. It just means that you have a different range of emotions or you may be engaged in your emotions uh, at a different level. And so we use this word emotional quite freely in our culture and in our society. We'll say that was very emotional. And what we mean is it stirred something within us. It elicited a feeling within us. And so when we are driven by those feelings, we often think, well, that's what it means to be an emotional person. It's about feeling something. Or, or if I can't control my emotions, that's what it means to be uh, someone with a high emotional range. I'm just, I feel a lot of emotions all the time. But actually, there's, there's something more that the Lord has to say about that, about bringing our emotions in line with God's plan, about bringing our emotions in line with God's will. And so the question I've really got to kick us off this morning is, what makes you happy? And you can heckle me, don't do it often, but you can heckle me on this occasion. What makes you happy? What brings you joy in life? Just one or two answers, you can shout out. Children, children, raise your hands if children bring you joy. They might sometimes elicit other emotions, but joy is definitely one of them. (laughs) Maybe one more, what makes you happy? Food, I'm going to take two there, nature walks, because that feels deeply spiritual uh, and more connected. Uh, But food as well, food is in the house. Emotion and food uh, are not necessarily separate things. Uh, isn't it interesting, you know, the question we, we always ask is, what, what makes you happy? Or, or we want people to be happy. We want people that we love to be happy. We want them to always experience ever, never-ending happiness. Wouldn't that be wonderful? When I think about my son and he has moments where he's upset, I don't want him to be upset. I want him to be happy. Uh, and happiness can show itself in many, many different ways. Are you familiar with schadenfreude? Uh, there are one or two German speakers that are definitely going to correct me at the end of the service. But schadenfreude, or in its English, better known as epicaricacy, which literally means joy upon misery. Uh, and this is something that's perhaps more a, a part of our British culture. Um, it's basically when someone drops a plate and we all cheer. You ever, you ever had that? I was in a hotel in Turkey a number of years ago, and uh, there was a, a load of Russians on holiday. There was a load of Swedish people on holiday, uh, and there was a few of us uh, from uh, the UK around a table, and a waiter smashes a, a load of glasses, drops them on the floor. It's a disaster. And what do the English tables do? They go, yay! The Russians were like, the, the Swedish were like... <laughs> Because it's not something that was done in their culture, but in our culture, there's this little moment where we're joy upon misery. Uh, And there's something very British about that. When someone breaks a plate, we all cheer because what it kind of signifies is you can get things wrong as well. That I can mess up in life, but there's someone else that messes up too. Let's cheer because we all celebrate that. And uh, that's a weird thing that we can bond over. But if you take that to its extreme. There's something within our emotions where we always want to experience happiness. We always want the people we love to experience happiness. And we would say that we want other people we don't know to experience happiness, yet we will celebrate when they don't. We'll celebrate when the opposing team loses. We'll celebrate and cheer in their face. We'll celebrate when someone drops a plate. But sometimes, if we let our emotions get the better of us, we'll also celebrate when people don't get the promotion that we were after. We'll celebrate when people have something go wrong in their life because our interpretation of their life is that they're always perfect. And if we're not careful, we can let our emotions drive us into some difficult or unpleasant attitudes towards others that don't necessarily reflect Jesus. And that's what schadenfreude is. That's what epicaricacy is. It's this kind of sense of someone else can be brought down and I'll take a little bit of joy in that. 
And I'm not sure really about happiness in general. I'm not even sure that happiness is the goal. That might be a little bit controversial. I'm not sure the aim in life is to be happy about everything. I'm not even sure it's God's will that we only ever feel happiness. Let's start at the beginning. If you've got a Bible, would you turn with me this morning to Genesis 1? And a little bit later, we're going to be in Philippians 1 if you want to get ahead. If you haven't got a Bible, don't worry, it's going to come up on screen. And uh, we're going to read this together. We're going to go to the very beginning, Genesis chapter 1, verse 24. And it says this. This is in the, the creation story. And it says, And God said, Let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds, the livestock, the creatures that move along the ground, and the wild animals, each according to its kind. And it was so. God made the wild animals according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds. And God saw it was good. Then God said, let us make humanity in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created humanity in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. Pop quiz. What diet did Adam and Eve have in the garden? It pains me to say they were vegetarians. Uh, and, all to, <laughs> and to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has breath and life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made and it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Genesis is uh, it's the first chapter of the Bible. It's one of um, the oldest books. Uh, most people ascribe it to have been written by Moses, but the reality is it was uh, probably more than one author. It's more tradition that we understand that. It would have been passed down through generations by oral tradition, that is, uh, tribes and families retelling these stories of who they understand God to be, uh, making sense of the world. One thing I just want to clarify is that Genesis is not so much about how the world was formed, but why. It's really important you have that in mind when you read the story of Genesis, uh, particularly when you start asking scientific questions about it. It's not that you shouldn't ask those questions, it's just that Genesis doesn't care. Uh, Genesis cares about us understanding who God is um, and why he made us. And then the other thing I wanted to note as well, that, that word humanity might appear as mankind in different versions. That, that is a, a Hebrew word, it's that sense of species, of all of humanity. And so most translations will say humanity or mankind. It's not gender specific, but it's really about the nature of our species as a people to understand that God created us, God formed us, God brought us together. But the word I really wanted to focus on was this word image. The Bible says in verse 27, God created humanity in his own image. And the word image there in the Hebrew is tesalem. It's the original language uh, of Genesis. Uh, and it has several connotations. You know, there's, there's two languages in the Bible. Most of you will know this, but if you're new, just here's a quick uh, side note. The New Testament's Greek. It's a very logical language, but the Old Testament is Hebrew, which is a very emotive language. It's more about the feeling and the sense of a word, which is really tricky when you translate it to English because we have very specific meanings to our words. Whereas Hebrew, it's not so much about reciting the words, it's how the story feels. 
And so it's worth knowing that, that when the Bible says that God made humanity in his image, there's a sense of something happening here. There's a, there's a feeling and a mood to his creation. And so the word can be translated in various ways. One of it is the image. One of it is resemblance. One of it could be likeness. One of it could be the empty space filled with the reflection of God, which I think is beautiful and poetic. Uh, one of it is this re- uh, figurative resemblance of God. Some translations even say phantom, which is a word that's a little bit archaic for us. And so when you start to think, okay, what does it mean to be made in the image of God? We've got to try and get a sense of what the Hebrew is saying. It's not so much it's specifically this thing. Does it mean that God had five, uh, five fingers? Ten fingers. We have ten fingers, right? There we go. Uh, that God had ten fingers and ten toes. Is it saying that God literally looks like this? You'll be thinking very much, no, Julian. God looks nothing like you. Uh, and that's a good thing, right? Um, is it that God takes the form uh, of humanity? No, it's the sense in which we're made. And so some would say it's a little bit like our emotions. It's the heart of God poured into his creation And that got me thinking that actually if we're made in the image of God, if we're made in the sense of God, what is that likeness? Well, the likeness is our consciousness, our mind, our makeup, the things that we feel, the way that we engage with one another. When we experience love and compassion, these are things that reflect the image of God. Well, how do we know this? Well, later on, we know that God sends his son Jesus and he demonstrates what it is to live from the kingdom of heaven, what it is to live in unison with God. And what is it that Jesus teaches us? He teaches us love. He teaches us forgiveness. He teaches us the grace of God. He teaches us mercy. And so these are things that are the likeness of God. Jesus says, follow me. Learn from me. Learn my teachings. Learn my ways because they are the likeness of God. And you and I were made in that likeness. So what is it when you come to Jesus? What is it you experience when you receive the Holy Spirit? What is it when God changes your world when you give your life over to him. What you're hap- what's happening in your heart is that you're rediscovering the likeness of God. You're rediscovering what it is to be in the image of God. You're rediscovering what it is to be connected with our heavenly father. It's a powerful idea. The word that we often use is it's the heart of things. Have you ever said, you know, I just know in my heart? What do you mean? What do you mean you know in your heart? Your brain isn't there, right? That's, that's, that's an organ that pumps blood. How can you know in your heart? No, what we're saying is there's something in my gut. There's something I feel. There's something I get a sense of around this. And the Bible tells us that when we come to the Lord, he creates in us a new heart. That he puts in us a new heart and a new spirit. In other words, what reemerges in our lives is the likeness of God that was lost through sin. Let me say that again. What reemerges in our lives is the likeness of God that was lost through sin. And when we experience Jesus working in our hearts, he's transforming our hearts. He's renewing our hearts. And so we're rediscovering the image of God. We're rediscovering the likeness of God. He creates in us a new heart and a new spirit. And when we come to Jesus, nothing necessarily changes on the outside. Our appearance doesn't change. I've been praying for a long time. It has not changed. That's okay. But what's happening is there's a transformation within. Now, all of a sudden, I can't stand evil. All of a sudden, I can't stand injustice. All of a sudden, I can't stand for people mistreating people because there's an image re-emerging inside. 
All of a sudden, I want to be kind to people. Julian, that's not like you. Yeah, I want to be kind to people. What is that? It's God working in my heart. All of a sudden, I'm not thinking about number one. I'm thinking about others. What is that? That's God working in my heart. There's an image of God re-emerging in my life. And so feelings aren't right. Feelings aren't wrong. The feelings we experience are natural responses, but what we've got to understand is that God created us in his image. And so if we feel something, it's fair to say that God probably feels something too. That whatever emotion you experience, the Lord gave you those emotions. He made you with feelings. Some of you are relieved to hear that. That, that, that my emotions aren't necessarily something that are, are a burden. They're not necessarily something that should hold me back, but something that should be recognized as a God-given gift. Now, how you manage them is a different story. We, we know that sort of deep down, right? Our emotions can get the better of us. And there's, there's two things that really is worth knowing as Christians before we hit Philippians 1 this morning is that there's something that happens within our brain around emotions. We have feelings and we have thoughts, and there's this ever-ongoing battle between those two things. Have you ever had that? Have you ever wrestled with an emotion? You know, Mercedes just lost a wonderful driver to a Ferrari. You might not know this, Lewis Hamilton, breaking news. He's left, and uh, I put on a chat with some, some of the guys that are into Formula One. I don't know how I feel about this. I don't know what emotion this is doing to me. Now, am I a Mercedes fan? Am I a, uh, a Ferrari fan? Am I a, a Lewis Hamilton fan? I don't know, because now there's something that's changed. And so I'm wrestling my feelings and my thoughts, but more seriously, you can go through something in life where you're wrestling through your feelings and thoughts, and there's two things going on. You have an amygdala and a prefrontal cortex. There's more than that in your brain, but those are two things worth knowing. The first one is the amygdala. It's the seat of emotion. Really, when we feel something, when we interpret the world around us, it hits the amygdala first, and then the prefrontal cortex kicks in. The prefrontal cortex is where we think, where we decide. It's the decision-making part of our brain. So another way of understanding this, and I'll give you the psychology paper references after if you're really interested, but I find this fascinating, is that we feel before we think. We feel before we think. So we're in a moment and something happens and immediately we respond. We, we have a, an emotional response before we have a thoughtful response. And that happens less, uh, it happens uh, quite, quite fast when you're young and when you're older, that delay, um, it gets better and better. So actually you're able to think more clearly as you get older than when you're younger. So when, when Judah, uh, my son, has something taken off him because it's harmful, he feels before he thinks. And immediately he cries and he's like, no, I want that. Why can't I have what I want? And he, he has no comprehension yet. His prefrontal cortex isn't kicking in, but eventually he understands and he maybe even forgets and his emotions fade away. As you get older, you're able to regulate that better and better. So for those of you who, who are no longer children, uh, no longer teenagers, no longer young adults, your thinking can overtake your feelings much faster. That's a better place to be. You might feel as you're older, you're just more in control of your emotions. Uh, and there's, there's loads of factors in that, but I think there's something of God's plan in the middle of our emotions and our thoughts. And the Bible tells us that we're, we're renewed, uh, so we, we need to be renewed in our minds. 
that, that our thinking needs to change. But it doesn't say that our emotions are wrong. It doesn't say that our emotions are a problem. It says that actually, as we mature in our faith, as, as we grow, our thinking needs to be the driver for our emotions. And that doesn't mean that you should ignore your emotions. And it doesn't mean that you should only con be concerned with your thoughts. It's that you've got to recognize there's a tension going on in our lives. The Bible says that in Philippians 1, verse 1 to 11, this is really what we want to plant our feet on this morning. Not in so many words that feelings are a factor in our faith. So we're going to read about Paul in a few moments' time, and we're going to read about how he feels about the church. But we're also going to read about what he thinks about the church. We're going to read about how he feels about the Lord and how he feels about his prayer life. But we're also going to read about what he thinks about the Lord and what he thinks about his prayer life. And you and I as Christians, as we read these words this morning, we're asking that question, okay, what do I do with all of the different emotions that I have? What do I do when I feel so compelled to act in a certain way? And at what point do I listen to my emotions? Or at what point do I suspend my emotions? Can I even suspend my emotions? I'm sure you might have had a time in your life where it felt like you could do nothing but respond to how you feel. And maybe afterwards you think, that wasn't a thoughtful response. It might surprise you to know this, that there are six universal emotions, six emotions that all of us feel all around the world. And those six are happiness, sadness, fear, anger, surprise, disgust, and contempt. That's seven, isn't it? <laughs> Life just got way more complicated. The guy that broke ground on this, which clearly isn't me, Professor Paul Ekman, he says that there are 1,000 ways to express each of those. Oh, you're fearfully and wonderfully made. Catch this. That means there's over 7,000 ways to feel. 7,000 emotions. And I don't know if you can feel them all at once, but that's a lot of emotion going on. It's a lot of feelings. That's a lot within us. Happiness is the feeling of joy, contentment and pleasure. Sadness, the feeling of sorrow, grief and unhappiness. Anger, the feeling of frustration, annoyance and irritation. Fear, the feeling of apprehension, anxiety or dread. Surprise, the feeling of astonishment, amazement and unexpectedness. Disgust, the feeling of revulsion, repulsion or aversion. Contempt, the feeling of disdain, scorn or disrespect. Isn't it interesting that we're obsessed with happiness? Yet there are thousands of other things to feel. And so when we, we let our emotions up, we realize that there's more than happiness to life. This is why I don't think happiness is the goal, because God made us in a complex way. Wasn't it powerful last week when Wendy said there's a whole book on mourning? Lamentations. A whole book on grief and sorrow. But we avoid grief and sorrow. We go, I just want to feel happy. We'll read this together, Philippians 1, if you've got your Bible. The Apostle Paul's writing to Timothy. He's in a church in Philippi. Timothy's a young guy. And he's got the responsibility of leading a church. And Paul writes to encourage him. And Paul says, Paul and Timothy, sorry, uh, but Paul's, not, uh, Paul's not writing to Timothy. What am I on about? Um, Paul and Timothy are writing to the church in Philippi. Uh, Servants of Christ, to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus, together with the overseers and deacons, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God every time 
I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Now let's, let's get the raw emotion of Paul here. It is right for me, verse 7, to feel this way about all of you. Since I have you in my heart, and whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace for me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this is my prayer that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth and insight so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of our God. Let me just go back to verse 7. It is right for me to feel this way about you, since I have you in my heart. See, for Paul, this isn't pragmatic. This isn't a franchise that he's building. He's not trying to get loads of churches and get it going so there's good activity and good reputation. No, this is a heart connection. This is a relationship. This is something that's visceral for him. And he says, it's right that I feel a certain way about you. My feelings are good towards you. And the reason I have that is because I carry you in my heart. And so he prays for them. He's thinking about them. He's Attention is turned towards them and he says, this is my prayer that love may abound more and more in you. And so where Paul's attention goes, where his thoughts go, his thoughts go towards the Philippians church, so do his emotions. And it's true for you and I that what we think about, what we focus on can be the attention of our emotions. And sometimes it can be the other way around. We'll experience an emotion and that will get our attention. Uh, have you ever been wronged by somebody? Have you ever been criticised? Have you ever been undermined? Do you feel something when that happens? Well, the feeling isn't wrong. That's a natural response. You feel before you think. But then you've got a challenge to do for those of you that are following Jesus is what do I do with that feeling? What do I do with that? How do I bring it in line with the Lord? Maybe I need to do what Paul does and I put my attention on the Lord and I can pray it through. See, as he thinks about the church and as he focuses on the church and as he uh, brings them to the Lord in prayer, his feelings connect with that. And so he says, it's right for me to feel this way about you since I have you in my heart. Whether I'm in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you sharing God's grace with me. It's that sense in which Paul is here with his emotions. He's here with his thoughts. He brings it together in a moment of prayer. Now, there's times when you're going to feel things at different levels. There's times when your feelings are going to feel out of control. There's times when your feelings are going to be overwhelming. There's times when your feelings are going to move you to actions that you never thought could imagine. But the question is, what does it mean to have my emotions brought in line with the Lord? Because he made me with emotions. He made me feel. He made me with a range of experiences that I don't always know. What am I supposed to do with that? Well, I love what the psalmists do is that they sit with ugly, ugly, raw emotion in the presence of the Lord. If you've ever read the Psalms, David has this moment sometimes where he's like, God, I'm angry. God, I'm upset. God, I'm harassed. God, I'm defeated. God, I feel an ugly emotion right now. What do I do with that? Well, what the Psalmists normally do is they, they embrace their emotion. And then there's always this phrase that appears, and you probably know what it is if you've 
been around church for a while. It's but God, but the Lord, but I know. And so what the psalmists do is they take what they feel and they check it through their thinking. Okay, I feel first. This is raw, this is hard, this is difficult. What's the truth about the situation? What's the truth about the Lord? What's the truth about who God is? My emotion is what it is, but what would it mean to make this a godly feeling? Or what would it mean to bring it in line with God's will for my life? What would it mean to not react to my emotion, but learn from my emotion? What would it learn, uh, be to learn to hold it in attention and pray it through? And the phrase that we would land on is that knowing that our emotion will pass. Well, you take a moment just to think back to one year ago to this day. How did you feel? Could any of you answer that question? It's a difficult question. The truth is you don't know because that emotion has passed. Now, there's times when it's heightened and it might stick with you and you remember the moments, but our emotions come and go. They're like waves. Now, they're not wrong. However you feel is how you feel. Emotions couldn't care less about right or wrong. They just are. But what you do with them matters. And so when you're feeling something extremely emotional, which is an odd phrase, the hardest thing is to hold on to that and go, God, what do I do with this? How do I sit with how I feel? How do I sit with this raw emotion? Whether it's good or whether it's bad, there's no such thing as good or bad in our emotions. There's 7,000 ways to express ourselves. 7,000 ways to feel. God, what do I do with all of those emotions? Well, I want to bring them back to Genesis 1. I want to bring them back to your image. Lord, what, it, what would it look like for my emotions to reflect your image? What would it look like for my emotions to reflect the kingdom of heaven? What would it look like to have my heart stirred for the pattern of God in how I feel? And I don't think we have much control in that. I think that's something we invite the Holy Spirit to do. And I think it's something that the only way we can manage it really is to hold it in tension until we allow God to speak into it. Because what we can do is we can feel something and go and make a decision based on how we feel. Or we can hold it and go, God, I want to work out what I think about it, but I also want to pray it through and I want you to speak into it. And I want to hold it for a day or two, which is really hard to do. Maybe it'll subside. Maybe it'll intensify. But actually, God, what would you have me do with this? I feel angry. I feel sad. I feel despair. I feel trodden down. I feel happy. I feel elated. I feel shocked. What do I do with that? How would that glorify you, Lord? How would that be brought in line with my faith? Maybe I could do what Paul did. Maybe I could focus it into a prayer. Lord, if someone's really offended me, someone's really upset me, maybe if I pray for them, I wonder how I'd feel. I wonder if I hold it long enough that if I had the attitude of Paul, in all of my prayers for all of you, I'll always pray with joy. How would, I, how would I bring my emotion for someone I'm struggling with in line with praying nothing but the goodness of God over them? I wonder what that would do to my emotions. I wonder what that would do to how I feel. And so here we are with 7,000 complex feelings, with a God who made us that way. 
the tension of our daily lives where we can feel and we can blow up and we can see other people blow up and it can be chaotic. But actually, what would it be as Christians to see the glory of God in how we feel? That's a tough question. And as we think about it, I'm just going to invite the worship team to come and join me on stage. We're going to take communion together. We're going to worship together. But very rarely do I wake up and automatically feel joy or feel sorrow. Unless, of course, I'm going through something in particular. Actually, we wake up and then our thoughts press in and the day weighs on and circumstances take place and emotions begin to rise. And then the question I'm left with, okay, God, this is how I feel. How do I worship you with my emotion? I'm made in your likeness. I'm made with this range of emotion. What would it look like to reclaim these aspects of my life that I take for granted and submit them to your will? It's okay to feel happy. You know that. It's okay to feel sad. It's okay to feel angry. It's okay to feel despair, to feel lost, to feel frustration, to feel upset. But it's not okay to let that dictate the course of your life. Actually, you can take that and go, God, help me rein this in. Help me not let it be a fire that spills over and burns everything, but actually help me to understand how I can sit with it, not ignore it, embrace it, and go, God, How would this glorify you in this moment?